All right, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to take a break from the book of Acts this morning for obvious reasons. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. I want to lead us out in a meditation this morning on verses 14 and 15. So if you'll look at those with me, we'll read them together. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to the lifelong slavery. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your precious word. Help us, Lord, as we meditate here. Lord, help us to see the riches that are here, the glory of Christ that's found here. Help us to see, Lord, open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes in such a way that we would get past facts and we would worship. You're worthy. You're worthy, Lord, of worship. So God, help us to look at this glorious incarnation this morning, your glorious death. Your victory over Satan, your deliverance from sin. Lord, help us to see these things and worship you this morning. Lord, I lift up each one of my brothers and sisters. That you would teach us to incline our ears to hear, to lean in. Lord, we need your help and we praise you, God, that you so freely give it. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, a little context here. So, Hebrews, this letter Hebrews, could be summarized as Jesus is better. It's really good for us to come to Hebrews and see over and over and over again, Jesus is better. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better. He's better. He's better. We need glorious glimpses of this Christ that we might worship. And as we come through, you know what? We just read chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. But before you get there, what happens before this in Hebrews? We've got Jesus presented to us as the eternal Son of God. We know God from the scriptures as Trinity, that our God is one God. Our God is one. There is only one God. And yet he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. But there's not three gods. There's one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Father did not become the Son. The Son did not become the Holy Spirit. They're the Father's God, the Holy Spirit's God, the Son is God, and yet there's one God. We have a glorious triune God. And Jesus is put forward to us in Hebrews 1 as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Creator, it says in Hebrews 1, who created all things. 
The one that not only created all things, but even now is sustaining all things. He's upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, isn't that some, some glorious stuff to say about a man born in Bethlehem? And that's what Hebrews 1 says to us. And as we get a little bit closer into Hebrews, uh, to the passage we just read, it begins to say something to us about the children. About the children of God. God's people are spoken of as the children. So who are the children? Who are the children? These are those who are in the mind of God before the world was. In the mind of God before time began. Those that He intend to save before time began. Ephesians 1 it says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. What sweet language about those in the mind of God before time began that He would call us children. You imagine being, you know, in the Scriptures we see these uh, inner... Uh, triune conversations between the Father and the Son, right? We get a little insight into the one God speaking between the persons of the one God. It's hard to even understand that in a sentence. But we get a little insight in that in Psalm 110 and Psalm 2. We, we have these places. You imagine that, that the children of God are those that are on their lips before time again. That Christ is going to come. The Son of God is going to take on flesh and save them. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. Children, that's sweet language. That's sweeter than citizens of a kingdom, although that's true. This, we're talking about God speaking about His people as children. So this is in Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus, Son of God, Creator, Sustainer of all things, and His children. And we get to verse 14 that we read a moment ago, and you can look at it again. With that background, listen to this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself, that's Jesus, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. The children, in His mind before time began, in love, predestined to adoption as sons. The children have flesh and blood. Right? You know that you've got skin and eyes and blood and veins and arteries and all these things you have. The children have flesh and blood. Before time began, the, one that he would call, the ones He would call beloved children were not the angels. But they were those of flesh and blood. That's what it says right here if you look ahead in verse 16. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Since the children share in flesh and blood. He, the Son of God, the Creator, the Sustainer, says here, He partook of the same things. That the eternal Son of God partook of the same things. He partook of flesh and blood. This is what Christians call the incarnation. Where the second person of the one true God takes on flesh and blood. God adds human nature to His divine nature. He's 
fully God, fully man. Jesus is not half God, half man. He didn't lose His Godness and take on humanity, but He retains His divinity forever and yet adds humanity, the nature of humanity to Himself. He's fully God. He's fully man. Who is this mind-boggling God? Who is He? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, fully God, fully God, fully God. Not three gods, one true God in the second person of the one triune God has humanity attached to Him. He took human nature onto Himself. He partook of the same things of flesh and blood. It says here, really flesh and blood. It meant Jesus really had skin and hair. And blood and veins and a spinal cord. He was flesh and blood. He really was. The Son of God was incarnate. He really was. And this means that Jesus' birth into this world is like no other birth you have ever heard of. It's the reason that the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14 said, Listen, a sign is going to be given about this birth that the virgin... The virgin shall, shall be with child and his name will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. The sign that a virgin is going to have a child never happens again. Emmanuel was born. God with us, born in the flesh. There's no birth like this birth ever. Divinity is robed in flesh. He who overfills the heavens and the earth is small enough to fill the womb of a woman. The infinite is made an infant. Amazing. Angels show up when he's born and they're screaming, glory to God in the highest. Did you see what's happening here? Do you see it? There's a simple question to help you understand this. And some of you have heard me ask it before. Where were you before you were born? Where were you before you were conceived? And your answer is, where, where were you? You were nowhere. You didn't exist. But Jesus is born. Angels are screaming. Where was He before He was born? He's the Son of God, Creator of all things, sustaining the universe by the Word of His power, born as a helpless babe. The God of the universe humbled Himself. And it says here in 2.14, partook of the same things, partook of flesh and blood. Now we would count it humbling if a holy, mighty angel lowered Himself, becomes human to save or to help or to serve Adam's race. We would count that as a humbling thing. But how much more when the one before whom angels bow day and night and say, holy, holy, holy. What about when He takes on flesh? When He lowers Himself? When He humbles Himself to serve Adam's race? What humility. He came not as a mighty man, a mighty warrior in the prime of his life with a strength like Samson. He didn't come like that. He didn't come as an old sage with the wisdom of Solomon. He didn't come like that. The maker of heaven and earth entered the womb of a woman. Experienced a full human experience. 
He who forms mountains and creates the wind that makes the morning darkness declares to man what his thought is. Helpless babe. Helpless babe. He who is not worshipped by human hands as though he needs anything finds himself in need of a mother's hands. He who treads the high places of the earth must learn to walk. He who speaks planets into existence must learn to talk. Divinity robed in flesh. He really became like us, flesh and blood. And not temporarily. Not temporarily. You ever thought that? That Jesus came and took on flesh, had it for about 30 plus years, died, rose from the dead, and He's done with that nonsense. Right? Wrong. The Scripture is plain that when Jesus rose, He rose as still God incarnate. Still the God-man. He took on flesh 2,000 years ago and He has it today. He's still fully God, fully man today. There's one of your own stock seated at the right hand of God. A human is there. Fully human, fully God reigning over this world. And one day returning. He became like the children that He loved from all eternity past. And it says He became like them. Now here's a question. Why? Why the incarnation? Why God made flesh? If you look at verse 14 again. Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Listen to it. That through death. Why the incarnation? Why? That through death. You must understand, God cannot die. He can't die. God is eternal and infinite. He can't die. So He takes on flesh that through death. He takes on flesh so that He can die. He's born to die. That through death. How could God taste death for us all when God can't die? Look at chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that By the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. How can God taste death for everyone when He can't die? He lowers Himself, becomes human so that He might die. He's born to die. There's a question in in about a 500 year old catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 16. This is what it says. Listen. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous human? Why must the mediator, our Savior, be a true and righteous human? Here's the answer. God's justice demands that human nature which has sinned must pay for sin. Why the incarnation? God's justice demands it. We can't pay for our sin. We are the sinners. We have sinned. 
God can't pay for the sin because He can't die. He doesn't have a human nature. So what does He do? He takes human nature onto Himself and God dies. It's the incarnation. Now it's very important at this uh, Christmas time that we realize that Jesus was born to die. That it's not just some cute little story of a baby in a manger and good luck and things that happened to him. But this one was born to save. He was born to rescue. And he was born for death. His birth and life alone, if you think about it with me for a moment, his birth and his life alone are miraculous and glorious, but they alone cannot save us. In fact, his birth and his perfect spotless life could be used to further condemn us. Do you realize that? WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Well, look what he did. And this could be used to condemn you. He's human. He's fully human. And look at the life that he lived. And look at the life you lived. His life is not enough, but He dies in our place as our substitute. He was born to die. The incarnation, God wrapping Himself in flesh is not just meant to be an example for us. Jesus is not, He didn't come into the world just to be our good example. He came to be crucified. He came to suffer under our punishment. He was born to die. He came to die. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Why the incarnation? That he might die. Let me say it another way. Why the incarnation? That he might be the propitiation for our sins. You say, what does propitiation mean? It means he is the wrath-bearing substitute. That he stood under the wrath of God so that we didn't have to. He moved us out from under the wrath of God and stood there in our place as our sacrifice. He was wounded for our transgressions. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and not us. He's the propitiation for our sins. And this means that His death is a death that has accomplishment attached to it. You see, we die just because of sin. We die and the reason for our death is our own sin. But He dies. Jesus had no sin. The sinless one died. Why? He was accomplishing something. We know from verse 17, propitiation. Our sin was being laid upon Him at the cross. And the wrath of God was being laid upon Him at the cross. So that our sin is taken away and our punishment is taken away. So that we can be free. But verse 14 and 15 mention more of His accomplishments in His death. What did Jesus accomplish? What did He accomplish in His death? Look at verse 14 again. Start with that through death. So he became flesh. Why? That through death, here's the accomplishment, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Destroy. That through death, he came into the world, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
destroyed. Jesus the destroyer. Do you think of him this way? That he is Jesus the destroyer. Genesis 3.15. One of the first things that we hear about Christ coming as the Messiah. Is that he's coming to crush Satan's head. The head crusher Jesus. The destroyer Jesus. 1 John 3 verse 8. It says the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Luke 11 verse 21, it speaks about Satan as a strong man that guards his castle, has his armor and his weapons to guard his stuff. But a stronger than he enters in, that's Jesus, the stronger than he enters in and removes his armor and rips his weapons from him and plunders his goods. He's the destroyer. Jesus the destroyer. Now, it mentions the devil here. That's Satan. The scripture teaches us a fallen angel and many other angels fell with him that we call unclean spirits and demons now. Satan, that fallen angel, and his ultimate weapon is presented to us here in this verse as death. His ultimate weapon is death. And Jesus strips him, strips him of his ultimate weapon and destroys him with his own sword. What did it say? Through death. He destroyed the one that had the power of death. He uses his own weapon through death. Jesus destroys the one that has the power of death. Jesus is the ultimate Beniah. Listen to 2 Samuel 23, 21 about Beniah. And he, Beniah, struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. That's Christ the destroyer. Jesus is David slaying Goliath. All our children's story, go look in the children's book. They see the rock is thrown, it's slung out. And it knocks Goliath out. And then the story ends. It doesn't tell the rest of the story. Because the rest of the story is that David goes, gets Goliath's sword and cuts off his head with his own sword. Through death, Jesus destroyed the one that had the power of death. That is, that is the devil. Now what does it mean that the devil has the power of death? Does it mean that the devil gets to decide who lives and who dies? Absolutely not. The scripture says God kills and God makes a lie. That's his realm. Does it mean that Satan is the ruler of the second death, the lake of fire of hell? No, absolutely not. He himself one day will be cast into the lake of fire. He'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what does it mean? It means this. That Satan tempts us. And he, and he blinds us to Christ. He tempts the world to sin. He blinds the world to Christ. And he does this until death. And therefore death becomes a doorway to hell. Death becomes a doorway to hell. Death is Satan's final blow. It's his final blow. If he could just get men to death. If he could just keep them in their sin until death. They burn in hell forever. He has a power of death. It's on his side in a sense. Now, this says that Jesus destroyed the one. Through death destroyed the one. 
In what way does Jesus' death destroy Satan? Is it the lake of fire? No, that's coming. Revelation 20.10. He's going to be cast into the lake of fire. So it's not that. Is it Satan's influence over the world is completely obliterated? No, it's not that. 1 Peter 5 says, Even now Satan walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So what does it mean that Jesus destroyed? He destroyed. It means that He has rendered Satan powerless against the children. He has rendered Satan powerless towards the children. The Greek word here for destroy is the idea of nullified. Satan has been nullified towards the children. He's been brought to nothing. He's been overthrown. He can no longer hold sin over the children's head because Christ died for their sin. Jesus removed the sting of death, stripping Satan of his ultimate weapon. Maybe this verse will help us think about how Jesus destroyed Satan. Listen to Colossians chapter 2. This is verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Think about your record of debt that stood against you. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands... This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Next verse. He disarmed, rendering them powerless. Disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Through death, Christ destroyed the one that has the power of death. That is the devil. What else does his death accomplish? What else? We see it in verse 15. Look at Hebrews 2.15. That Jesus partook of flesh and blood that he might die. Why? Verse 15. And deliver those, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why does He need to die? Why does He take on flesh that He might die? That He might deliver those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Deliver. He is the deliverer. Do you think of Jesus this way? Jesus the deliverer. He's more than an example to us. He's more than an example to emulate, but He's the deliverer, the rescuer, the Savior. Matthew one twenty one. Call His name Jesus, for He will save Save His people from their sins. 1 Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's a deliverer. Do you see Him as more than an example? But He's a Savior. He's a rescuer. Humans, according to this verse, humans are subject to lifelong slavery through the fear of death. Humans are subject to lifelong slavery through the fear of death. You know, a lot of few people, some people might say, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death. Facts and research bear out that this truth, that we all die, we all know that we're going to die, and we're all terrified of it. That humans are going to die, humans know they're going to die, and humans are absolutely terrified of that reality. Some people might numb the fear for a short time, but when that last breath approaches, 
Their heart races and fear abounds. Lifelong slavery to the fear of death. But this says Jesus delivers us from that. Now, how does Jesus' death deliver us from the slavery of the fear of death? How does His death accomplish this? I was enjoying reading uh, 1 Corinthians 15 this week where death is spoken of as a person. Death is spoken of not just as a person, but as an enemy. Even that last enemy that falls. So death is even taunted. Oh, death, where's your sting? Death is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 as a person. So who is death? Death is that horrible escort into eternal damnation. Death is that horrific escort into eternal damnation, eternal condemnation. That's who death is. And 2,000 years ago, death accidentally escorted in the wrong man. He, he escorted in the one that when he got there, swallows up damnation for his people. Death is a very powerful foe. He escorts into eternal damnation and no one gets out. He escorts into eternal damnation and then death guards the door and no one can overpower him and return from the dead. But 2,000 years ago, death escorted in the wrong man. The one that swallowed up condemnation and damnation of his children. And then he went back to that door and death could not hold him. Death wasn't strong enough to hold down this one. And this one, you know, is Jesus, our Savior. Jesus beat down death. And I want you to think about this. That's not all he did. Jesus beat down death. And instead of immediately doing away with death altogether, he enslaved death to the children of God. He beat down death, but he didn't do away with him immediately. Rather, he enslaved death to the children of God. Now death must live a life. Now death must live a life in service to the people of God. He comes when it's time for them to be escort escorted into the presence of their Savior. Death arrives. And the ones that used to weep in fear when He arrives, they greet Him with a smile. And they're glad that He's arrived to escort them into eternal joy. Death is bowed down as a slave to the children. Jesus ate death. Spit him out. And now taunts him. And that's scriptural. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. It says death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus ate death. Spit him out and listen to the taunting song over death. Oh death, where's your sting? Death, where is your victory? And at the second coming of Christ, even this enslaved job that death has to escort the children into the presence of Jesus, at the second coming of Christ, death will even lose that job. 
And that last group of Christians won't be escorted by death. They'll go directly to the King of glory who returns to this earth. And the Scripture says that death at that moment will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. With this in mind, do you see how Jesus delivers us from the fear of death? He took on flesh. He partook of flesh and blood. That through death He might deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. And Jesus delivers us from that. Very quick application to any Christians, all the Christians in the room. I want to encourage you to go deeper in your Christmas celebrations. Worship the God-man in your Christmas celebrations. Worship God made flesh to die. Worship God for what He has done in Christ. And let Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 be a help to you. And to anyone here who's not a Christian, any non-Christian in the room, I want to encourage you, please come to Christ and don't delay. You've heard of a, you've heard of a gospel You've heard glorious gospel truth. Yes, you've heard it from a weak man. But you have heard glorious truth from God's Word. Don't delay. Come to Christ. Death is coming for you. How can you obtain the deliverance that Christ talks about here? How can you obtain deliverance? Do you just work really hard for it? Just do your best. Be the best person you can be until you die. Is that how you obtain it? The prophet Isaiah says no. He says we are like an unclean thing. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Your best will not be enough. How can you obtain freedom from the fear of death? Just numb yourself to it. Hope it goes away. People do this all the time. Drugs, alcohol, work, money, pleasure, whatever it might be. Just let me numb myself to this. But listen to me. Death is relentless. And when you wake up from your stupor, He'll still be there. How can you be set free? How can you be delivered from the reality of death? You must come to Christ. You must come to the Savior. Mark 1, verse 15. Jesus said this. The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what you must do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for letting us meditate on these truths. Thank you for your glorious, glorious work in our salvation. Lord, we worship You, Son of God incarnate. We worship You for Your death, Lord, that You died a death that destroyed Satan and died a death that delivers us from slavery. Lord, we want to worship You. Help us to do it, Lord, for the glory of Your name. And Lord, I pray for any here that don't know You this morning. Lord, that You would open their eyes 
God, please, any that don't know you this morning, please open their eyes to a beautiful Savior. Help them to see, Lord. Don't let them die, don't let them die in their sin, Lord. Give them a fear of the judgment to come, Lord, that they might run to You for the relief of that fear. Thank You for Your help. In Jesus' name, Amen.